Now, as you may recall, we've been in 1 Timothy now for a number, a number of weeks, and we've been engaging several issues uh, in, in the most more recent weeks that have to do with the church that Timothy is in charge of. And Paul is on his way to Ephesus to assist Timothy in, in, in taking care of that church. And Paul sends this letter ahead of himself saying, hey, in case I don't get to you, here are some things. He says, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. That's in chapter 3, verse 15. So we've been follow, as we've been following alongside, looking at those things, those items that Paul is concerned that Timothy is addressing in the church, we've seen a lot of practical items. There, there's been a lot of things. For instance, we've seen things like being respectful. Younger folks in the church being respectful to those that are older. And how do you, Timothy, as, as somebody who is younger, address issues of sin or maybe uh, coming alongside individuals that are older than you and giving coaching in that? And then there's been the issue of how do you deal with someone who is a widow? How can we help them? And what if the widow is young enough to maybe potentially remarry or even potentially there's family that's, that's available to help take care of that individual? Paul's been giving a lot of practical help. And then finally, at the, at the last section, he gives some instruction on how to think of elders and how elders in the church interact with the congregation. All of this very practical. You agree with me? These are all things that we all can relate to and we see the connections and ways that we can apply that even today. Because remember, this document is separated from us by thousands and thousands of miles, okay? And at least 2,000 years. Right? So the culture, the distance, all sorts of things separate us from this. And when we look at all of these things that Paul is wanting to address, it's very nice and neat that we understand. But today, today's not going to be like that. <laughs> and unfortunately for you, the youth pastor is the one that gets to talk about the difficult stuff. Good thing is, this is my second time doing it. So you're in the, you might be a little bit better off. Who knows? But today, we're going to look at... 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those. And as we do, I, I, I want to challenge us. Uh, because the difficulty of this passage, it, it's going to hit a bunch, of different, a, a bunch of different notes for us. We're going to be tempted to do some things. We're going to be tempted to think this doesn't apply to our culture today. And therefore, because it doesn't apply to our culture today, it doesn't apply to me. And then we're going to also be tempted to look at this and think, yeah, but even if it does apply to our culture today, I don't necessarily fit this particular instance. So I want us to be cautious as we go into the text today. To be very cautious and careful to not walk past good fruit that the Lord has for us in the text. There's 71 words in this passage. It's not a lot. And we can easily walk past like we do things all the time and dismiss it thinking, maybe at another time. So let's not do that. And let's pray together. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to read and then we're going to pray. Got it backwards, mixed up there. So 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. 
But all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the, and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who, have been believing, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Now we can pray. Lord, we need your help today. We need your help as we work through the difficulties within this passage and we think about all of the concepts that we have that we'll be tempted to bring into them and the presuppositions that we often come with that sort of help us get out of the challenge that you bring us in the text. So I pray that we would hear from your word this morning, that we would feel it in our bones, Lord, and that we would be shown again how your text is not only preserved, but it is productive. Spirit, please convict us of sin where we need it and show us we are forgiven through Christ and lead us into repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. The difficulty of this passage is pretty simple. If you're reading the ESV today, you'll notice that Paul refers to this, 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 this individual, this, this category of what he calls a bondservant. So you all see that in your text? It's, it's there. And what that is, is that's put there specifically to help us with something uh, that we, we all, because of where we live and the age that we live, and, live in and, and the educations that we come from, are all going to load the word that's actually there in the original, which is simply slave. Paul is addressing those who are in bondage to slavery. See, the, the, the issue here is that we're going to be tempted, like I said, to think that this doesn't apply to us because slavery, frankly, is not, whether it's like this or like the image that we have, is not something that we're necessarily in submission to. And because of that, it's going to be easy to, like I said, dismiss this. But there's something here that's been put down for us in the sense that this word is aiming to help us understand slavery, at least at this time, is not probably what you think of when you think of slavery. So the word is aiming to do at least three things for us, and I think that it's just helpful to review that as we look at the text going forward. First of all, slavery in the first century was not necessarily a lifelong thing. Uh, most of us understand uh, from, from just the past in the United States and, and a lot of Western cultures with imperialism that, that typically this was something that somebody was not going to be freed as a slave. And in the ancient world, people that were in, in slavery were very often at the end of their time released and given their, given their freedom. Oftentimes even people would submit themselves to certain masters in the Roman world with the idea that when they would be released, that they would receive something even like Roman citizenship, which would be incredibly powerful if you obtained that and had no other way by your family to obtain it in that world. So slavery is in itself in the ancient world not necessarily something that was forever. We see this probably the most clear 
in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, where Paul says, if you were a slave when you were born again, don't freak out. Okay, don't, you don't have to go and change all the locks, if you will. He's saying, however, if, if you are able to obtain your freedom, do so. Absolutely do so. And so this is an example where we can see that, that, is, that that's something that was tied to this, this idea. Secondly, slavery was not related to race in the first century. Uh, the, the most curious part, I think, for us, it's not necessarily in the whole, is that folks were typically involved in slavery not because of their race, okay, but actually because of their economic or social status. It almost always had to do with folks that were conquered in battle and their children after them. It could often be related to folks that just had no way to make it in society unless they submitted themselves to essentially indentured servitude, where they would have, in a sense, three square meals a day, a, a place to put their head down, and, and they would submit themselves to this. There, there are even uh, many, many, many scenarios in the ancient world where, where slaves were, who were freed would often then go and purchase slaves themselves. And all of this was to indicate, essentially, that you could look at any given home of stature that had slaves in their home, and you wouldn't, just by the, the color of their skin or their race or ethnicity or whatever, would not be able to tell who was the master and who was the slave. And so this, this correlation is something that's relatively new in, this, you know, in the span of time, and this is not what the Bible is addressing here. Not what we think of when we think of the South, which was typically almost always associated with African Americans. This is not the case. And third, the Bible in no way, in any place, condones human trafficking, abuse, or slavery. It's important to understand that. When we think about passages like chapter 6, in chapter 6, 1 and 2, it's very easy for us to see and act like Paul is sort of just being dismissive not being shocked and, and, and sort of put on his heels at the fact that there are people that are, that are enslaved. He's, he is not condoning. In fact, we see this for sure because if you look back in chapter 1, verse 10, you see there's a long list of sinful acts that are given at the beginning of the book. Inside that list is the word in slavery. You should see it in your text. It's there, and that literally means those who kidnap. With the understanding that he's condemning the act of going and capturing individuals for the purpose of enslaving them. He, he condemns it outright and lumps it with many other offenses. So all of this, all of this is important, and he even goes so far, just to, just to circle back fully, he even goes so far to address those who would be tempted to go into a, slave, a, a sort of circumstances where they wouldn't be enslaved, he says, you were bought with a price. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become a slave of men. And so, all of this is to show that what we deal with today in chapter 6 is not, it should not, and is, is, is an error for us to import a lot of the conceptual ideas that we bring from the 17th, 18th, and, and probably early 19th century. Does this, does this make sense? Now, that, that helps a little bit, right? Because we can go, okay, it's not like that. But still, we're not slaves, right? 
And this, and this becomes difficult. So how do we translate this into our time and culture? So especially here like in Center Church, right, in the middle of Gilbert, I don't know if you know this, but in 2020, the average income in the, in the town of Gilbert, any ideas? Average, well north of six figures. That's the average, okay? The median was just under six figures, okay? So how do we, coming from this and surrounding communities, think about something like that? How do we do that? And I think, it's, I think if we pull back, we can look and see that, A, we remember we remember that the scripture that is here, it's for us, right? It's not to be dismissed, and so there is something for us to learn here. But secondly, we have to look a little bit further. We have to look a little bit deeper to understand what translates to us. And when we look at this, I would propose that Paul is telling Timothy that we as a church, as Christians, are to be a people who honor those whom we serve. We are to be a people who honor those who we serve regardless of circumstances. Now, in this situation, in these situations, this is an awful, <laughs> awful circumstance. None of, none of us want to be in this boat. But Paul is suggesting that there is very, there's a very important reason for why we want to honor those that we serve in all circumstances. And he starts with looking at those that we serve outside the church. Right? If you look at the passage, it says, all of those under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Right? I want to stop right there. We think this is like not really that big of a deal. Like if, if, if you're tracking with me, you might see the temptation right, to not honor somebody that you're serving. But most of us are, are thinking in the sense of how like, we operate within professionalism. Right? If, you, if, if you work in business or any, any kind of transactions, professionalism is installed essentially as a way for us to work within one another, have a certain amount of transactions go on, and things never really get personal, right? At least that's the idea. You always have the ability to look at somebody and say, well, you know, they're just not being professional. In this world, that ain't, that's not the case. This is not, there's no concept of being a professional when it comes to this scenario that these kinds of people would be dealing with with their masters. They have no, the word literally means somebody who owns another individual. I don't know if you're tracking with me or not, but that doesn't usually come with, oh, and they need to value them and think highly of them and take care of them and worry about their feelings and make sure that they choose their words very kindly, all of those kinds of things. It doesn't happen. Now think about this. Paul is asking somebody, a multitude, a group of people, to consider those that they serve in obligation, and to regard them with all honor. Notice how he's not saying because they deserve all honor. Because they are worthy of all honor. Because they're really, really great folks and you really should make sure that you act, accurately represent that. He's saying regard them with all honor in spite of what that relationship actually looks like. Is it starting to click? 
I'm, I'm horrified. Uh, I'm horrified to think of the way, just, just being in the workforce for a number of years, I'm horrified to think of the way that I've interacted with people, right? And if you look, if you look at the charge where he says here, give them all honor, right? But look, let's look at the reason he gives. The end of verse 1. He says, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. There is, in Paul's mind, an absolute connection, a link that goes between how the servant interacts with, honors the master, that there's a direct link to the way that the master sees and understands the name of God and the teaching that comes from Him, namely the Gospel. Think about that. How does your work life, how does our work life contribute to the reputation of God? Does our interaction with those we serve or work for, does it reflect a message of Christ and His teaching that leads to blasphemy? Or does it lead to praise? The challenge here may be posed to slaves in the first century, but all of us know, all of us are absolutely clear right now that there are many relationships that we have, folks that we interact with, folks that we are designed for whatever reason or another to serve that are not necessarily believers. And we have to ask ourselves, we're forced to ask ourselves, does our contact, or our, our contact with them adequately tell the story of God's glory, His beauty, His might? And does it adequately show the beautiful, absolutely life-changing work in the Gospel? I think about some of those memories, and I have to tell you, there's probably some that would have been better if they didn't even know I was a believer. I know we all have those. But the challenge here is that we look at and see the charge is for us to look at those interactions, to look at those points and opportunities for service outside and to think about the billboard that we're putting up. We, we don't realize this, but we are tied to the Gospel. We are tied to the name of God. And when we interact with folks and it doesn't reflect that, it's a tragedy. We have this concept, we have this idea of going out to the nations, right? We're going to pack up everything and for a summer we're going to go to Mexico and we're going to build houses and churches and all these kinds of things. And we get really excited about it and those are really great things. What about communicating the Gospel what about communicating our love and adoration for the living God in the honorable way that we interact with those that we serve? I think we start there. I think that's the challenge of Paul here, is that sometimes, even at the most reduced level in the most awful circumstances, the one thing that we can absolutely do without question is that we can preach the Gospel through our love and care of others outside of His church. And that, I believe, 
is what we see here. Secondly, we have in verse 2, is we think about how we serve those in the church. When we, with, with those inside the church, we serve and love knowing God that, that God loves them. And if you look at verse 2, he says, those, meaning the slaves, who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good, good service are believers and beloved. There's no, uh, I, I, think, I think there's no doubt a massive temptation when we live in a community of believers, when we have brothers and sisters that we're with all the time, many of us growing up together. I mean, there's a whole row right here of believers that have been growing up together. Uh, and and, and it's, it's no question there is a number of opportunities for jealousy, for bitterness, for other things like this to grow as we, we interact, right? How many, I mean, it, it's not uncommon. The, almost the entire New Testament is dealing with these kinds of things, right? This disunity and this stuff. I like to think of Philippians, right? Even Philippians, like the Mr. Rogers of the, New, of the Bible, uh, like he's totally happy about everything all the time, but he's addressing this one issue, which is what? There's a, couple, there's a couple of folks in the church, in the church, that are they're not jiving. They're disagreeing with each other, and it's creating contentment. And as we think about this, this idea of serving one another in the body, what does it come down to? This issue right here, Paul gets at it pretty quickly. He says, don't, don't feel this way towards your master, master because he's a brother. Meaning like, you, like, they know you're not really a slave. They know you're, you're important. Like, you got status. I mean, what happens if this, this dude right here that he's talking about is an elder in the church? Right? This, these, these kinds of things are about fishing for our, like, entitlement. It's getting at this issue that you think and we think and we come to these, these relationships and we think we're owed something. And just like that in the church, we can often look at serving one another and we are completely immobilized, we're completely broken down by the fact that we think that this doesn't apply to us. Think about that. That's the reality. You see, we need to neglect the temptation to feel that way. Because the whole premise of what this is, what this is to meet as the body, to participate in communion is identifying the fact that nobody here, there is not ever, never has there been an individual in the church that has not been a beggar who has been brought in not by their own doing. Brought in by the mercy of the Creator. Brought in by the blood of Christ. There is nobody, none of us in here has any privilege. None of us has any more right. None of us is entitled to anything. And so when we think about serving one another, we need to remember that all of us are in the same boat. We all are in desperate, constant need for sin to be forgiven, for newness of life to be given to us in the resurrection. All of us are in this position. But yet, we struggle. We struggle. We need, we need a picture. We need to see. So when Paul gives us this, I think that there is encouragement because we have in our faith an amazing picture. 
The perfect sacrificial service is modeled in our Lord. You follow me? Jesus shows us this perfect model of sacrificial service to people. Undeserving people. And I think that one of the most powerful ways this is depicted is John chapter 13, verses 1-9. through Now I want you to pay attention to this because there's going to be some things that are going to pop up later on. In 13, uh, 1-9, it says, uh, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, Simon, uh, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that, the Father had given all things into His hands. I'm going to read that again. Knowing that, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, He tied it around His waist and He poured water into a basin and He began to wash His disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Of course he said that. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And I think we are all in line with Peter right there. That's the dynamic. Think about this. When we think about service among the brothers, among, among the family of God, right? The household of God. When we think about serving one another, not just as slaves, but in the, in the most nasty situations, in the situation none of us wants to be in. Like the toilet explodes and who knows what's going on in there. That kind of stuff. And even worse, who knows. Or the most difficult needs come up when somebody has a need and they need help. Right? All of those situations. We are always in line with Peter to receive that. Always. We want it. I mean, it's, 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 it's no, there's no question. And like Peter, we look at the Lord who serves and gives us, and cleans us, and gives us all that we need, and we say, yes, wash everything. I need it, Jesus. But rarely do we follow Him in the adjacent passage. Please follow me. In uh, verse 12. And when He'd washed their feet, and put on His outer garment, and resumed His place, He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, think your Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, that word means slave, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you 
if you do that. I love that John makes sure he hits pause and he throws his nice parenthesis in there. Right between knowing all the stuff that's going on and what he does to serve his people, his disciples, it says, oh yeah, he was not confused about who he is. He knew where he was going, he knew where he was from, and he did it anyway. This, this is the challenge. This is the challenge from Paul. Don't think that you have some sort of privilege that keeps you from serving your brothers and your sisters. We are as a people by nature recipients of the greatest, the highest name, the one who, the only one who has any right to say, I deserve a little bit of respect. And it says, he humbled himself and became a servant, a slave. That's the doctrine we preach, folks. That's the Gospel we believe, is we are served by the Creator, the One who needs nothing from us, the One who speaks and worlds come, the One who absolutely holds, as Hebrews says, all things together by the Word of His power, and He humbles Himself, and knowing that, He washes nasty, disgusting, who knows what's between the toes, I don't even want to think about it, all sorts of nasty stuff going on there, and he's down there washing it. Why? Because he wants his people to know this is what it looks like to be my disciples. This is what it looks like, folks. We don't serve one another because we have to. We don't serve one another because it's sort of like our turn. We serve one another because the Gospel is absolutely seated on the fact that the only person who doesn't have to, constantly does. And all of us would be to hell in a handbasket, frankly, if it wasn't for that. That's the good news. Is that we get to receive that amazing service from Jesus in the fact that He laid down His life for us. And so we need, as a people, to be focused on that. We need to see our value in Christ. That's the easy part, right? We have to disconnect from thinking our value and what we deserve comes from, like, whatever. We, I mean, everyone in here has got a different reason why they shouldn't be in the children's ministry, right? if you think about it. So we disconnect that. We're going to put that aside. And we're going to think about the fact that, guess what? Everyone else needs what I need. That's what we are. So when Paul writes to Timothy and says, you need to know what it looks like to live in the church, what it looks like to be a body, and then he calls it what? A buttress of truth, which means what? We're here to represent what the truth is. We're here to show the world what the reality of things are. That's what it's supposed to represent. People tripping over themselves to look like Jesus and serve one another. People stumbling over their own steps to go out to the world to serve people that are nasty and to serve them and make it so they cannot say anything, absolutely nothing about Jesus that is not glorious and deserving 
because of us. That's life in the church. And so when we look here, we need to remember the Gospel. Let's remember the Gospel, the good news that destroys the home base we've built for resentment and entitlement and getting what I deserve and making sure that I can get the things I want done and the Gospel that prioritizes the kind of care for others that we are constantly receiving in Christ. The Gospel that gives us the kind of eye to our brothers and sisters and knows they need help. They need Me. They need something that I can give and they are forgiven just as I have been forgiven. We need those kinds of eyes. But folks, do not be fooled. Do not be fooled into leaving this room thinking that this is all about just pulling your act together and getting things in line. That's not what this is. If you're here today and you're perplexed at the measure of what's being instructed, that's good. I want you to understand that this is not a natural thing. That's what you're feeling. So don't leave thinking like this is some social justice kind of stuff, like we're going to make the world a better place by linking arms and making sure we're always serving. That ain't going to work, folks. This only happens one way. Sacrificially serving others with honor and respect and glorifying Jesus comes through what Zach mentioned earlier, the new covenant. The heart transplant that we all need. It's not natural. It's another taste bud that needs to change. Your desire to be served, your desire to serve yourself, your desire to get as much as you possibly can out of every relationship that you have irregardless of what you give back. That has to be killed. It has to die with Christ, folks. And if you think you're able to do it on your own, I'm sorry. Not only is that never going to happen, but that is a false Gospel. And I want to tell you right now, just give it up. But Jesus, Jesus has modeled the way and He has paved the way for us sinners, those of us who only look in to be able with a new heart to be born again and made new, to be washed with the water and the blood and to go forward in newness of life with the resurrection and to be able to selflessly walk into danger, walk into disgusting, to walk into difficult, to walk into whatever the necessary requirement is and to serve with love and with humility and to give honor to Christ. So why not? Why not as a church? Uh, If you call Center Church home, why not? Why not be a people that are just sold out. That are absolutely convinced not only that they need Jesus, but actually want to replicate the kind of intense love that He gives to all of us all the time and serve one another. I don't want to just say that. I don't just want to float it out there as a nice little, like, get a little hair standing up, goosebumps feel good. All right, that'll give me the parking lot and then on to in and out 
I don't want us to think of it like that. We, this, this right here is requiring, it is challenging us to be different. Let's kill the old man. Let's leave him on the cross with Jesus and let's live in light in the newness of life of the resurrected new man with Christ. And let's be a people who are looking for ways everywhere to serve one another and to glorify the Lord and to glorify His name and to make the Gospel heard in the way that we interact with people that are absolutely lame. Pray with me. Lord, I pray for Your mercy for all of us. It's one thing to preach a message about serving. It's quite another to serve. So, pray, Lord, I pray that you would help us and that you would lead us and you would move us into a place that we would really, truly desire to worship you through sacrificial love and service for one another. I pray again, like I did the first service, Lord, I pray you just delete anything stupid I said. Nobody would remember it. And I thank you for your grace, and I ask for mercy and grace for those that will be heavily, unnecessarily heavily burdened by the challenge in this sermon. And I pray that you would press in hard on those of us that need to repent. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a factory of grace for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.